deceptive manipulative. Is also a former social worker and a political campaign activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Eerie Americas. I'm your host, Christy Hall. And this is Vicky Ayala. What's up, Vix? We're recording on a Wednesday and it's throwing me off. But, you know. It feels a little weird. It's weird because we normally record on like Saturdays or Sundays, but, you know, life happened and we're a little late this week. And now I feel like I should have a weekend because it's Wednesday and we're recording. But this actually might be good for us because then we're going to have some downtime to do other things on the weekend. Like Saturday here is almost 70 degrees. I was going to say, how's the weather there? Is it crazy? Because it's been so like up and down in New York. It, last week, it was 20 degrees outside with the windshield that felt like 12. And then it was like 60 degrees today. And I didn't know what to fucking wear. Last weekend was a little chilly at night, but you could tell it started to pick up. But like since Monday, it's been progressively getting nicer. Been in the high 60s. It's super sunny. There hasn't been like a cloud sky. Oh, yeah. You get to do something like nice, like outside. <laughs> I'm going to find something. I have my bike. There's a million parks. I'm going to hike. Do something. Do not stay inside. Not 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 on the first like really nice day. Plus we lose an hour on Sunday. So get your get your time in. My Saturday. time in. And not just that. Get put in my two weeks notice because I got a new job. Yay! There's a ton of upsides. I'll talk about it later when I actually start. But it is the best commute in my life. It is 0.3 miles from my house, a.k.a. a six minute walk. <laughs> a three minute bike ride. I Googled it just to see if I felt like biking one day or if I'm late. So it's the best commute ever. I don't have to worry about getting a second car for a long time because not only it, this place is like a huge, you need a car to live here type of thing, but everybody needs to have their own car. And that's been my big thing. I know I sound super hippie, but like, I'm like, that's so much carbon footprint. And like, I'm so, I'm such a New Yorker. I'm not used to having- You barely used your car in New York. Like your car would be parked. Exactly. That's what happens in New York. If you're not from New York, you don't understand. But basically, you park your car because it's hard to find parking. You move it on alternate side parking day. And you really do not take your car out until maybe the weekend when you run errands. But like plenty of people judge people like, oh, you're on the train. You should have a car. Nobody drives because you're not driving into Manhattan. And you don't want to lose your parking spot, especially if you live in Brooklyn. There's no parking. Christy had a car and I think the whole time that we hung out in Brooklyn, like we mostly took trains and stuff because it's just easier sometimes. Traffic sucks. Something's always going on. So in New York, you can have a car, but like really never drive it. But that's not the case over there. People think I'm nuts out here. There was a day I couldn't bike to work or, you know, I just didn't get up and I didn't feel like spending cab money again. So I walked and it's three miles. People were acting like I traveled from the east side of the world and walked my way to the west side. They were like, wait, <laughs> hold on. You, you walked? They could not understand. I'm like, Meanwhile, in New York, people walk that every people walk in new york we just do it's not a big deal but to them they were like blown away three miles is nothing here that was my that's how far my old job was from my apartment and i used to walk it all the time people were like yeah it's only three miles like it's not a big thing and it's not like i like i live in denver but i'm not in the mountains i'm in the city it was flat ground it wasn't you would think that they would be okay with the walking i'm not like hiking <laughs> to get to work or anything absurd <laughs> And then walk down one street the entire time. And so everyone was just like, oh, I'm so glad nothing happened to you. I'm not 
survive Brooklyn. I would love to move to Colorado in some really nice fucking neighborhood that I live in now and something actually happened to me. That would be the biggest irony of all time because I would. I'd be like, dude, my entire life and there was tons of shit that I evaded and that's all I'm going to say about it. So walking a couple miles down to my job is no big deal. So what happened? You gave your two weeks notice and And, um, so I tell them, you know, because I I was candid with them because they asked me what I thought of the job and I was just kind of like, so they already kind of had it in their head that I was planning on leaving. On Tuesday, when I got the official offer, I go to my boss on Tuesday and I'm like, you know, I, this, I can do Friday. And he's like, this Friday? And I'm like, no, next Friday. Later in the day, the girl they ended up wanting to hire had come in. And I guess she said she could start Monday. So they were like, all right, screw her. We'll have her start Monday. So they just, you know, I haven't been there long enough to train her. And I completely understand. It sucks that I'm losing the pay, but I'm also looking at it like, hell yeah. You got a week off. A week off. And I'm not going to yeah. have a week off for God knows how long now. You need three months before you get days off. So what's up with you? Nothing really. I just watched the trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix and it was like super disturbing. I know I told you not to watch it because I know how upset you get when it has to do with like children. I can handle a lot of things, but when it comes to child abuse and things like that, it just really, it gets to me. I can't handle it. And I saw that it was actually... Because now Netflix has this thing where they show you what everyone's watching, I guess. And like, yeah, now they have like a top 10 thing and it's like number two. Yeah. Um, I, I'm someone who can handle a lot. I really don't get affected by, by many things. And even Christy was surprised because I texted her and I was like, I had to stop after the first episode because I was so upset and it was just like making me sick to my stomach. And I literally watched The Office for like the 47,000 times just to like have something like happy and like funny because I watched it at night because that's the only time I have to watch stuff. And I was like, I cannot go to bed with this in my head. I finished it, but it was extremely, extremely hard to finish. It just made me so sad and it made me so angry. And it just like, I don't get angry at things like that. But like, I literally wanted to reach the fucking screen and just like strangle people. It feel like just because I'm never going to watch it. And maybe there are people that are going to listen that feel the same. Can't watch it, but are kind of curious. Did it seem like a case where this could have been avoided or? There's a part of it that they actually, um, just for like a little background, they actually charged some of the social workers in his case for falsifying documents and stuff like that. This system completely failed him. And that's what's so like, you're not, you don't just get angry at the fact that, you know, grown people were beating up this little boy. You get upset at how he was failed time and time and time again. It was so frustrating. And so that's what made it so hard to watch. Plus they like showed actual pictures of like his injuries and they go into it and it was just It's not for the faint of heart. If you're going to watch it, go ahead. I just suggest that, you know, like, just don't watch it before bed. Like, that's why I told my sister. I'm like, just don't watch it before you go to bed. You will not have an easy time going to sleep. But it's definitely, it's definitely something that is uh, important because I think people need to know about it because unfortunately it, it does keep happening. But yeah, that was pretty much what my week consisted of. And it was just like, it kind of like, I finished it probably five days ago and I'm still thinking about it. Would you recommend it? I would recommend it, but I will warn you that it is extremely hard to watch it's graphic it's descriptive know that it's it's not something that's easy and it might take you a while to watch it like I usually threw something like that in like a day or two it took me three days to watch it three days to watch six episodes because it was kind of it was hard so I found a new site that yeah I have some really interesting stories and it's actually called yourghoststories.com so you can kind of submit your own stories and your own things that have happened and it's pretty interesting so these are going to be like real stories from real people 
That's awesome. Check it out when you're downtime. But I'll read this one that I found by DevXXX from South Carolina. The headline reads, A Spirit That Perfectly Takes On the Image of the Living. That's creepy already. Long, long, long story short. There is a spirit that is mimicking me exactly. Its face is perfectly mimicked. It has no wonky eye, no misplaced eyelash, no incorrect coloration. It looks exactly like me. I have never seen it. My grandmother, father, and cousin have seen it. Here's my grandma's story. Fast backstory. The house had one owner before us, and they moved out due to paranormal activity. When we moved out in elementary school, we began renting the house to families. They all moved out due to paranormal activity. But they didn't know this when they moved into the house. Okay, got it. My grandmother had heard of these stories, and needless to say, she did not believe. She believed solely in her little Southern Baptist Bible-thumping ways and nothing outside of the norm. Yet this day, she pondered on the idea of there actually being an entity in the house and began to pray against it to show itself. She was standing in what was my room, painting and praying. As she explained, she simply wanted to see it if it was real. Yet she prayed for a person appearing in the frame of the doorway. She explained it as me. She said from head to toe, it looked like me. Same hair, same eyes, same face. It was wearing clothing that was very similar to my own. She said it could have been my twin. Yet its facial expressions were much more sinister. She said it looked directly through her. And once it glanced her way, she screamed, it disappeared, and she left. Please help. What could possibly mimic me exactly? There's more stories to tell. Not enough space. Okay, I'm very creeped out because I am home by myself right now. It's just me and my dog, and I don't really turn all the lights on in my apartment when I'm home. (laughs) And so now I'm super creeped out. And I feel like I have to turn all of my lights on. It's like a mimic. Honestly, I think that I would be okay with like an entity in my, as long as it doesn't fucking look like me or human, like just or leave me. form into looking like you. But it seems yeah. like he selected her. Yeah. Like out of everybody, why her? Why didn't it look like the grandmother or something? But then else again, the like that could be the case for any like haunting where somebody's seeing it more than somebody else in the same house. Why does that certain people have that kind of ability to attract those type of things? I have no idea, nor am I interested. This is a case I've been working on for a while. During our break, I watched a lot of 2020, a lot of episodes that I haven't watched. And there's one that came out in October that made me want to do this case. And I had never heard of this guy before. It's kind of like two stories in one. It's the story of Tiffany Stacy and John Robinson. So we're going to start with Tiffany's story. In the year 2000, there's a girl named Heather Robinson, and she's kind of a normal 15-year-old girl. Um, She's living in Illinois with her adoptive parents, Don and Helen Robinson. And she knew she was adopted. It wasn't a secret that she was adopted. She just didn't know anything about like her biological family at all. She was kind of like okay with her adopted family. And she basically finds out that the man that she grew up knowing and loving as her uncle John... Well, not even loving because there are certain parts in her interviews where she says that he was kind of like the weird, creepy uncle, but it was still her uncle. You know, it's her uncle, John, was actually a serial killer who was arrested for murdering multiple women in Kansas City. This turned real quick into something else. First, I'm like, oh, Uncle John. Oh, that's sweet. Oh, what? Like, he's a serial killer? This just went right in. Yep. And this happens when she's 15. So in the year 2000, her uncle gets arrested for the murder of multiple women in the Kansas City area. And one of those women included her biological mother. 
And her family had no idea. So they were all shocked. There's a quote from her because she was she was on this 2020 special and she was and she says, quote, when I heard that John had been arrested, I remember my adoptive mother running up and down the stairs panicking. How could he do this to us? We're going to go to jail. This is horrible. Our lives are over. And she said that was the first time she ever saw her adoptive dad cry. So he gets arrested and she starts learning the truth behind her quote unquote adoption. So the parents knew? No, nobody knew. They had no idea. That's why they were freaking out because they're like, oh my God, they're going to think we knew about this. And we didn't. They, they didn't know anything about this. What are the chances? Well, because John Robinson's a fucking con man. What she learns is that her biological mother's name is Lisa. It's spelled S-T-A-S-I. So I'm going to say Stacy. But her mother was named Lisa Stacy, and she vanished in 1985 with a four-month-old daughter, which was Heather. And everyone, including, like, everyone in her biological family thought that they were both dead because, you know, it's 2000. This was 1985. They assumed that they're both dead. Right. And so she starts finding out who she really is. She finds out that her name is really Tiffany. Her name is Tiffany Stacy. Her name's not Heather. She grew up with a birthday in October, which we all love October. She said that she loved her birthday. You know, she loved that it was close to Halloween, grew up dressing up in costumes. And then she finds out that that's not even her birthday. Her birthday is September 3rd. Ooh. And then she basically starts to wonder about her mom. And she, st- she states, quote, I want to find out where she is. I want to know who she was. She found out that her mom was only 19 when this happened. So she's like, she was a scared abused 19 year old with a newborn desperate to keep her child and be a mother. And that's the whole reason John got to her because we're going to find out exactly how this happened. Before we dive into that, I wanted to know more like who, who is her mother? Her mother was this just young mom who met a guy and got pregnant and got married very, very young. And then he seemed, um, it, there's a little bit of a discrepancy with him, but like, it seemed like he may have been abusive. Because according to, I'm going to call her Heather because that's what she goes by, you know, Tiffany. She said, you know, her aunt stated that, you know, she got into a fight with her husband, Carl, who is uh, Heather's biological father, around Christmas in 1984. And she basically left. Some kind of turmoil. In right. Her. She leaves and she takes her, her baby and they she goes to a residential women's facility. And it's around that time that John Robinson finds her because he claims to be a man that is helping women who need to get back on their feet. So like women who have like newborns or maybe pregnant or just escaping a situation where they're desperate because that's what disgusting people do. They prey on the vulnerable and she's this 19 year old girl with a four month old. So obviously like she's desperate and she needs help and she's trying to like stay on her feet with her baby. And so that's kind of how she got to her and I'll get more into it later because I'm starting at the end and going towards the beginning so that's basically how we got her on January 8th 1985 Lisa drives the baby over to her sister-in-law Kathy's house so that she can babysit the baby and she starts telling her all about John Robinson and she's like you know he's a guy and he's got this program and he helps women and he said he'll help me with the baby and he basically promised her like work an apartment daycare and of course why wouldn't she take that and so even though Kathy kind of was like you know suspicious of it the next day that's when um John Robinson comes for her and and the baby and that's the last time she's seen alive the crazy thing is a couple of hours later Kathy gets a really strange phone call from, from Lisa she stated quote she just called and she was hysterical she was crying hard and she basically said that John was making her sign four blank pieces of paper And she didn't understand why. And so Kathy's telling her, don't sign anything. Whatever it is, don't sign it. And all 
Lisa says is, they're coming now, and she hangs up. After that, nobody hears from her, but then all of a sudden, they're getting these letters from her. And the letters are stating, quote, I want to thank you all for your help. I've decided to get away from this area to try to make a good life for me and Tiffany. And this is going to several of her family members. But everyone is kind of suspicious at this because as you talk to the family, they're like, she didn't know how to type up a letter. So they're like, who is this guy? Where is her baby? Did he take them both? And she, they're stating like she would never leave willingly she would never take the baby willingly she would have fought him and they kind of never get answers but they continue to get these letters stating that she's okay and that she left willingly and that you know she's doing this whole new life on her own as uh heather's finding this out she's also kind of finding out other bizarre things and one of the most bizarre things is actually how he got arrested because this is the year 2000 and at this point heather is 15 her mom's been dead for 15 years she was kidnapped 15 years ago how did he not get caught when he finally gets caught, it's actually, like in a lot of cases, it's never like a murder that's committed that they get caught on. He got caught probably on the dumbest thing I've ever fucking heard. Besides the fact that he was murdering women, there was one woman who he stole $500 worth of her sex toys. And the police had already kind of suspected that he was doing things. And once he stole this woman's sex toys and she reported it, because it was theft, they were able to get a warrant to search his property. And that's kind of like how all of this blows up. Hold on. So the police were already suspicious of him. How? Well, let's get into it. So he's like a master manipulator. Okay. And throughout his master manipulation career, he does get in trouble. He just keeps getting away with shit. His crimes go all the way back to like, he was born in 1943 and the first time he got in trouble was in like the 60s. Because the first thing he did is he gets a job as an x-ray tech at a medical practice and steals $33,000 away from them and they find out and he gets three years of probation. What? So when you have consequences like that, you kind of keep doing shit. The reason I decided to frame the case this way instead of just giving you straight facts is because I'm telling it the way Heather's finding out about it. Because she doesn't really find out right away. She's like, he's arrested for murders, okay, and my mom's one of the people. But who is he? And this is when she starts to kind of learn about his life. So we learn that he basically started manipulating people from his 20s. He gets those three years of probation, obviously doesn't learn his fucking lesson. At 21, he gets married to a woman named Mary Jo. They have four kids. But... Throughout the, their marriage, he still continues to do, like, really dumb shit. So, like, in 1977, he has a job, and he there's, like, a big banquet for him, kind of, like, telling him how great he is. And it turns out that it was all a scam, and he kind of set it up to make them think that he invented something that he didn't. What? Wait, hold on. He got an award for Man of the Year for all the great work he had done, but he had never actually done it. How? There's a former reporter that the Kansas City Star that literally said it turned out it was his own invent. Like, he made up all the work he did. Like, he just invented a whole career, and he had never actually done it. And then he, there was, like, a banquet thrown in his otter. Like, and that just goes to show you, like, people think that it's hard to get manipulated, and it's not because it's people that, like, can charm you into believing anything they say. And he literally charmed his own job into thinking he had done all this shit that he didn't. He invented a whole career. Hadn't done any of it. Unheard of. It's almost impressive. It is kind of impressive. And the thing is, it, it's kind of the same way why Ted Bundy like was so successful. It's because you think you know what a serial killer looks like and you don't. Because they ask people here, they're like, he was not dangerous looking. He was like a family man. He had four kids. He 
coached sports teams. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was a scout master. So nobody. So if this guy is telling you, I did this, 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 and this, you're probably inclined to believe him because it's like, why would he lie? It's not like he's like a crazy looking dude that's like, nobody's going to believe him, but that's how they get him. Pretending to be normal is the best cover. And also in the 90s, as we know, because we're 90s babies, came the birth of the internet. And once the internet, like in the beginning, I mean, now it's different. Like you can track everything that everybody's doing. But when the internet first started, like nobody knew what it was and you could just kind of get away with things. And he's kind of known as one of the first like internet serial killers because in the late 80s and 90s, he basically starts putting out ads looking for women who are just kind of looking for like a sex slave relationship like this is how he does these things but again nobody would ever suspect that just from looking at him because he kind of just looks like a regular dude with a family so now in 1984 he puts out a help wanted ad in a newspaper for a sales representative job and he ends up hiring 19 year old paula godfrey he's hiring people god knows what fucking job this is and according to police robinson had john robinson had basically told her that She would be traveling to Texas for some training for this job that he's hiring for. And then she was never heard from again. And again, he writes letters to her family to make them think that she was alive and she was fine. And she just met this man who gave her this job and her whole life is better. That was his thing. And the letters would basically state, oh, I'm fine. You you don't need to worry about me. Basically just like kind of ensuring that the cops can't follow up with anything because it seems like they're communicating. But also like a lot of people can tell when it's not their family member, but sometimes you can get fooled because as you're going to learn, as I tell you about more of these cases, some of the families are like, that's not them. But some families actually believe it to the point where they don't even report the person missing because they don't think she's missing. And that was his whole thing. He thought, I'm going to write these letters and these families are not going to report them missing because, well, they're not missing if there's letters from them, which is why he had people sign blank pieces of paper because now they're signing it because he's a master manipulator wow so around christmas of 1984 three months after paula godfrey vanished he started the kansas city outreach program where he starts reaching out to women who are in trouble and he goes as far as like going to hospitals and telling social workers about this program that doesn't fucking exist making up shit again This is the only time you could have gotten away with this because right now... Right, because you can't do that now because they'd be like, where's the website? Where's your business card? But then it was 1984. Exactly. So he basically tells these social workers that he's starting this program for young pregnant women or women with newborns to get back on their feet and he's going to give them a job and a place to live. The same spiel that he gives all of them. These social workers actually believe him. But in 1987, he actually ends up in jail for other fraud charges, for like other scams that he's running. This is one busy guy. Before he was sent to prison, another woman in her mid-20s named Catherine Clampett disappeared. So while he's in prison, he gets a job in the library and starts a relationship with someone. Her name is Beverly Bonner, who was married to the prison doctor. So he starts a relationship with her. After he gets released, she actually leaves her husband for him. Time out. How the fuck did this guy get in touch with, like, someone... The the way that they're wording it, because I looked it up in a couple... I think she worked there also. She just... Being with someone's wife in the prison. Fucking knows. She, she, like, literally... And the funny thing is that she waits until he gets released and then leaves her husband. (laughs) And guess what? She disappears. Oh, shocking. And he begins collecting her $1,000 alimony checks that she gets monthly. Because she leaves her husband for him. She gets alimony. She disappears, but he's still collecting her checks. So has this money coming in so like, you know, he can... At this point, his wife left him, right? No, he's still with his wife. 
Wow. Now it's the birth of the internet, like I told you. And he starts using all this money he's scamming out of people. And he literally sets up five computers in his house and just starts coming up with all these aliases on on the internet, calling himself slave master and all these other names. And he's now starting to try to hook up with women who are looking for sex. So he joins the whole like BDSM internet culture, which... Again, the internet is new and it's like really taboo. That's like going after another vulnerable community because you know they're not going to say much because they're hi- they're probably hiding this life from other people. But through the internet, he meets a woman named Isabella Luica in 1997. So now this has been like years since he's been out of prison and he's just been running his little scams and he's like perfectly fine just living his life. So he meets this woman. She's a Polish immigrant and an art student living in Indiana and he convinces her to go to Kansas to be his submissive. And then she disappears. And again, he starts writing letters to her family. But her family's suspicious because she's a Polish immigrant. Obviously, English is not her first language. And he's writing letters where everything is like spelled perfectly. In English. Idiot. It's like you going to another, if you went to another country and then like someone started writing letters to your mom and saying Christy's alive and it was in Italian. They'd be like, Christy doesn't fucking speak Italian. He was writing everything perfectly so the family like, this is when suspicion starts to arise because she disappears and like but why are we getting letters with stuff written perfectly in english and i know that as a child of an immigrant she's a student she just got here there's no way she's writing perfectly there's no way there's yeah but he apparently had convinced her to come here by lying and saying he was a wealthy businessman and saying he was going to take care of her but that he was gonna, she was going to be a slave but it's okay because they were going to travel and he was going to pay for everything and like you know that's how he's convic- convincing the he promises uh, these women everything and- exactly everything that they're looking for everything that they don't have and you know he's going after young women she's a student lisa was 19 paula was 19 they don't know much about the world and naive and especially at that age your experience with men in general are very it, for most of us are it's very limited exactly Especially somebody older who has who is a con man like that's open prey right there you really are exactly and he's like older so he's had time to figure out what to do so like the mother her mother said, stated she was like quote the rings things weren't worded the way she would word them everything was spelled right so then there's another woman in 1999, who goes missing by the name of Susan Troughton. And the same thing with her. He starts mailing out letters to her family. But her family gets suspicious, not because everything's spelled right, but what's spelled wrong. He's, like, spelling the names of her dogs wrong, and that's not something you do. So, like, I think he's starting to get sloppy at this point. Because, yeah, there's people that are starting to get suspicious, but now... Remember, he's written other letters before and the families were kind of like, oh, maybe I won't report them missing. But these families are like, no, we're reporting them missing. So at this point, like now there's investigations going on. And this is when he starts to like come up on police radar. So this is 99. We know he gets arrested in 2000. So this is really where like the investigation kicks into high gear. They're kind of searching for Suzette Trout and she's the one with the dogs that, you know, he spelled the name wrong in there. There's a task force that's created once she goes missing. And as they start investigating, they discover two dogs that had been abandoned at a trailer park where John Robinson lived on March 1st, 2000, which is the same day that she disappeared. So like they're starting to connect some things and kind of like they called her dog's name out to see if those were her dogs and the dogs came running. So that's how they knew they were hers. So like they see these two abandoned dogs, they see them at a trailer park, they call the names out and they're like, those are her dogs. She would never leave her dogs. And that's when they kind of start putting together who lived in the area and John Robinson's name comes up. Now this is when they start fearing that she's dead. So now they start 
pretty much again kicking it into high gear now they have the task force now they have the dogs now they're starting to think that he had something to do with her murder they're guessing at this point so now there's an investigators on the case um now at this point this i'm gonna tell you now that i was a little confused about this in the article but i had to include it because this is how he got caught this is like one of the things that really got him to get caught right somehow like the mother of suzette Troughton was in communication with John Robinson at one point asking where her daughter is and the police asked her to record the phone call. And I couldn't find, there's so many articles about this, but a lot of them are so focused on the fact that Heather was alive that some of the facts of the other women kind of got like a little bit like lost to me. And I'm sure that if I had like another six months to research, I probably would have found it. They basically asked her to record a conversation of her calling him asking about her daughter because he has been telling her that the daughter left with someone else to travel the world because that's just something people do. They just get out, they travel the world and they leave the dogs in a trailer park. Yeah. Right. But I mean, if I were to travel the world, I would still talk to people. You know what I mean? Like I would still talk to my mom and I would still talk to my friends. Like you don't just, I don't know. I wouldn't just be like, all right, travel the world. Bye. Like that's not what people do, but that's what he's trying to tell her. I'm going to read some from their actual taped conversation that she got for the police. So John Robinson Now, she's asking where her daughter is, and he's trying to convince her that she left. So John Robinson, he says, oh, hon, don't, you know, I wouldn't get nervous. Basically brush off that she's worried about her daughter. So her mother goes, I'm nervous. Susie always calls me. John Robinson goes, oh, well, from what I understand, they're on a boat somewhere, and she could, it's kind of hard to call. So now now she's on a boat somewhere, and that's why she's not calling her mother. So the mother goes, I'm really getting very nervous about this. I don't know if I should maybe call the police or something. John Robinson goes, why? So the mother goes, well, because I haven't heard from her. And John Robinson goes, honey, she's a big girl. Just trying to be like, don't call. It's not a big deal. She's on a fucking boat somewhere. That's why she's not calling. And that's so patronizing. It is. It's completely condescending and patronizing. And I am 33 years old. I still call my mom. And when I'm heading home from the hospital, I will get a text message in 35 minutes if I am not home. That's how long she gives me to get home. She's like, are you home yet? So big girl or not, a mother and a daughter, like we tell our parents that we're okay. Mm -hmm. So he's basically trying to brush her off. So later on in the phone call, uh, the mother actually asked Robinson whether or not she should notify someone about her daughter's disappearance. And he basically, quote, tells her, hun, I wouldn't, you know, I really wouldn't worry about it too much. I'm sure that when they hit the next place, they'll, um, they'll send us a card or call us or email us or something. Still trying to play this whole your daughter's just on a boat somewhere sailing. Yeah, okay. I just truly, like, you have balls to do this to somebody's parent, like, to someone's kid. But but that's like a sick... To the parent. This is like the sick mind games that manipulate people play, though. Like, it's like, it's not bad enough that the daughter's missing and now you're really going to try to make it, like, act like this. You're going to try to, like, negate her feelings and make her think that, like, something's wrong with her. Like, that's truly, like, a fucking... It's evil. evil. Terrible human being. Well, the evil doesn't end there because now that he realizes that she's probably looking into him, he starts now sending letters to family members and they're getting letters that are addressed from Kansas City. They're getting letters that are addressed from California. They're getting all of these letters from all over the place. And all along, everybody keeps saying the same thing. That's not the way Suzette would write. That's not the way she would write. That's not the way she would write. This this is not her. So now they're they're... Their police are doing more into the investigation. They start, they don't have a warrant to go into the house yet. So they just start like looking through his trash because that's what, that I've learned this in all this research that that's like one of the things they can do. They can look through your trash and they look through his trash and in his bag, his trash bag, they find 
shredded documents. So they try to piece it back together. And one document that they were able to actually like put back together has a location to a storage locker that belongs to John Robinson in Missouri. On one end, they're continuing to follow him because they want to see if he's trying to like manipulate another woman or try to like lure another woman in. And then another part of the task force goes to this storage locker. Like they literally followed him. Like anytime he went to a hotel, they would rent the room right next door to him. They like had all eyes on him all the time because they're trying to kind of catch him in the act. They don't, they're not going to let another woman like die, but they don't have enough on him. But they have just enough suspicion. Right. They have just enough suspicion. But again, no warrant to search his house. They can't arrest him. They don't really have much. So one of the investigators on the case named um, Dawn Lehman, she stated, quote, towards the end of the investigation, we learned that there was a young female that he was trying to lure down to the farm. And that's when we decided that we have enough and we're not going to let it go any further. So they're kind of like closing the deal on him. This is when a woman actually goes to the police about John Robinson. Mind you, he's still married. I just want to remind everybody, he's still married to to Mary Jo. He actually has two women come forward. One comes forward with the allegation about him stealing her sex toys. And another one is that he basically, like, assaulted her. Okay. The sex toys is what gets them the warrant. So it's, like, crazy where he does all this shit. He has probably killed women. He has definitely kidnapped them. And he's definitely doing all this, but it's him stealing $500 worth of sex toys that really like gets them John Robinson. So now we're in June 2000 and he's being, he's arrested and he's been held on charges of aggravated sexual battery, which was one of the charges that a a woman held against him. Plus the out of town woman who he stole the sex toys from. So he's being held on those two, those two things. I love out of town woman, meaning she was traveling with $500 worth of sex toys. Worth of sex toys. I I have to throw that (laughs) out. Yeah. It's like, I know it's a terrible situation, but it's just, the circumstances are hilarious. I just had to say it. I know I can't not acknowledge it. That's all I'm saying. And honestly, she got off easy because it's like he sexually assaulted this other woman. The other woman went, went missing and you just got your sex toy stolen. Could be. But this is what breaks the case open. And thank goodness, like some people might not go forward and be like, this dude stole a bunch of my sex toys. Because if it was me, I definitely wouldn't go forward. But her going forward is why he's fucking caught. So like kudos to her so now that they have this theft charge now they can finally get all the warrants that they want and this is when they start searching his farm in kansas titled a slippery mistake (laughs) (laughs) it is a slippery mistake so they start searching his farm in kansas they use like cadaver dogs which they uh, the cadaver dogs get a hit on his farm in kansas the cadaver dog starts like sniffing he lives in like a trailer (laughs) and they start sniffing around some barrels so one of the like detectives or whatever, he's like by the barrel and the barrel falls. And when the barrel falls, there's like a red line dripping from it, which I'm assuming is blood. And that's when they find in two, two bodies in two barrels. Um, it ended up... This guy left the barrels with bodies in it right near his trailer park. Yes. Wow. And it was, it ends up being the body of Suzette Trouton, which is the mother, and Isabel Luica, which is the Polish immigrant. So their bodies end up going for autopsies. But now they still have that storage locker in Missouri. Now, Missouri's different. They're they're Right now, they're in Kansas City. They're going to Missouri now. And they're looking up this storage locker where they find three barrels. And kitty litter had been put down to kind of to mask the smell. And that's where they find more bodies. They ended up getting identified as Beverly Bonner, which is the woman he fell in love with in the prison. The bodies of two other women who were missing at this time Sheila and her daughter Debbie. Now Sheila was 45, her daughter was 15, and nobody had heard from them since 1994. 
And the reason that they were targeted, because normally he targeted young women, is because her daughter had cerebral palsy. She was in a wheelchair. They were on government assistance, and they only had about $1,000 to live on. So she's desperate to, like, get a better life for her daughter because, you know, someone with cerebral palsy needs a lot of doctor's appointments. They need a lot of care. And that's how he gets to them. He basically does the same thing, tells them, drive to Kansas. I'll get you a job. I'll get you a home. I'm going to help you with your daughter. And so she drives to Kansas, and they go missing, and they find their bodies. And the crazy thing is that they didn't find the body of Heather's mother. These are all other women that he killed, and he actually didn't find the body of, of her mother. But this is how they finally connect it. So again, they're, they've got all these search warrants because now they have an office. They have other locations that he's affiliated with, the house and office. They actually found several blank letters with Suzette's name at the bottom, which is how he was mailing the letters out. They look inside a locker and in the locker, they find a photocopy of a receipt from a motel from 1985 with Lisa Stacy's name on it. And that was the hotel that he had brought them to on their way to a better life. Fucking awful. And now at this time, this is June 2000, shortly before Heather starts finding out, they actually don't know that she's alive. They still think that when they first found this evidence, they actually still thought that the daughter was probably missing somewhere. Or deceased. Or deceased. Yeah. And now they're trying to like just, con- con- they basically have him connected to all of these different murders. And then they find out about this adoption with the brother. And this is how much of a scumbag he is. He manipulated his brother too. So his brother and his brother's wife had been trying to adopt through like regular legal means. And they just, they couldn't. They wasn't happening. Something was going on. It just, they weren't able to. And he basically- it takes people so long. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. You have to go through like interview processes and all that. And so basically, what John does is he tells them scumbag so that's going to make them question it too of like course look around at the whole family too so when you have they, and that's like why this. when Heather Farce finds out she said that the, her her mom was freaking out I would freak out too if they found out that someone in my family is a serial killer tomorrow they would look at me like you didn't know right because it's hard to believe that they don't know but he's such a scumbag that he scams his own family so he knew that his brother and his brother's wife were also vulnerable because they really wanted a child So he tells them that one of these women he's helping committed suicide and that he's got their four-month-old daughter and that he just needs a couple of thousand dollars in legal fees and they could adopt the daughter. So he scammed his own brother and sister-in-law out of thousands of dollars for their legal adoption of this baby. And he even manufactures really real-looking adoption papers. Wow. So he scammed his own brother and sister-in-law out of money for a stolen baby from someone that he murdered. Yep. Holy shit. You can't. And this is this is Heather. Out of a, a book or a movie. And this is why I wanted to cover this case. And I know it sounds messy. But like imagine this is Heather. And this is her finding shit out. This is what she's finding out. Adoption story as far as. Yes. You know. This is her adoption story. Like it's like everyone's affected. Like her poor like mom and dad. Because it's like you murdered her mother. And then gave her to us. And then you were around for her whole life. And you just looked at her. And you looked at us and you were okay with it. He was okay with looking at her every day. All the time. There's pictures of, there's literally pictures of them like right after he gave her to them with like her on his lap. Just like chilling. Like it's like you didn't murder her. Like he probably murdered her mother that day and was just sitting there with her on his lap, like hanging out. Super fucking disturbing. Truly. The fact that. She was alive and then like adopted to his brother was like a bombshell to the fucking police. They're like, holy shit. They would think somebody would be that stupid or crazy or bald. Right. 
And it was confirmed that she was Lisa Stacy's daughter. They do DNA, they do fingerprints, and it's confirmed that that was, that was her mother. It's weird because when they're talking to Heather, they kind of asked her, like, was there ever anything, like, off about him? And she stated, quote, he always gave me this really weird, off-putting feeling in the pit of my stomach. It's like walking down a dark alley in the middle of the night while you know someone is behind you, uh, approaching you closer and closer. You just felt that drop dead in your stomach. And she said that's what she, that feeling he always gave her. But I'm pretty sure she didn't ever think, like, he's a serial killer and he fucking murdered my mom. And the worst part is that they never find her mom. And to this day, she still does not know what the fuck happened to her mom. But he does end up getting charged with her murder and convicted for it. So he basically, in 2002, um, he goes on trial in Kansas for the murder of Lisa Stacy and uh, two other women. They said that there were more than 23,000 pages of police reports when they went to trial. And he ends up getting the death penalty for these cases. But remember, he murdered some women in Missouri. Missouri too. So he actually goes there also to get tried, but they gave him a deal where they would just give him life sentence to avoid the death penalty. But he's on death row. He's like 75 years old now and he is fucking on death row. Still alive. On de- he's still alive. Because this, this, um, this 2020 special actually came out last October. So that's why I was surprised too. He's 75 years old, still on death row, and he still has never told her where her mother is. And he never will. He's a sociopath. And he never will. He's a psychopath that way. So poor Heather has found out, I mean, at this point, it's been, you know, 20 years, but she has spent 20 years not knowing what the hell happened to her mother. That's so crazy, dude. That's fucked. She does have a relationship with her aunt, her biological aunt. They did ask her, and I listened to the 25th special, she doesn't have a relationship with her father because she feels like her, her mother left him for a reason and she feels like there's something there about why her mom left and, you know, she was scared because she she was abused. Like, she's, you know, her mom was abused by him and she feels like she has a father and she doesn't need another one. But she does have a relationship with her biological aunt. She still has a relationship with her parents. But the poor girl never got any answers from the person who she grew up knowing as her her uncle the only answer she got was that he is never ever getting out of prison but that's the story of john robinson that's the only reassurance for her i'm sure yeah but you know i i think she you know one of the things she wanted is she wanted closure she wanted her to to put her at peace she wanted to like give her a resting place and she can't do any of that because you know they never found her body there was a chronological list of like the murders just to like make them more clear in 1984 paula godfrey who was 19 her remains were never recovered then in 1985, it was Heather's mom, Lisa, who was also 19. Her remains were never recovered. In 1987, Catherine Clampett, 27, her remains were never recovered. 1993, Beverly Bonner, her remains were discovered at the storage facility. 1994, Sheila Faith and Debbie Faith, both of them were discovered in the storage facility. 1999, Isabel Luica, whose remains were discovered, and Suzette Troughton in 2000. So this was over from 1984 to 2000. But he got convicted for all of these, whether or not the bodies were found, just because there was so much evidence tying him to them. And I had never heard of this guy. So I'm just like, how the fuck have I never heard of this dude? That's a bonafide serial killer. So like, it's crazy that. There's, yeah, there's just so many I'll elements has them in barrels around the country. Oh, he definitely knows exactly where these women are. He's just never going to tell them. And at this point, he's already, he's either going to die in prison or he's going to be put to death. So like, he's probably just like, what do I have to tell you for? It's not going to get me out of this. It's true. Damn. And so he just has a bunch of families out there who don't have the real answers as to what happened with their family i mean at this point it's a it's kind of a guesstimation which is not a word but i'm guessing like they're guessing when these people died he does really no proof that lisa stacy died in 1985 because he kept sending letters afterwards so who knows when she actually passed away they're just gonna have to guess that it was 
1985. Speculation. That's crazy, dude. Whew. All right. Well, let's move on to where who does that. Seriously, it sounds like a book, like a Stephen King novel. It doesn't sound like something that's real. And that's why I was like, is this real? Like, am I really hearing this? And like, you wouldn't know it's real, but you're, you're sitting there and you're watching Heather speak and you're listening to her tell her story. And I'm like, this is insane that this is somebody's life. I'll put some links up to the 2020 special on our website because it is it is a really it's a really interesting episode. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who, who does, does that? that? Via TorontoSun.com. This is so good. I headline made me laugh. That's how I was like. I'm <laughs> so excited. BC man gets pranked with fake Wiener Mobile ad. What? <laughs> Hot dog! What a prank. A British Columbia mechanic who says his information was hacked after a Facebook flame war woke up to a thousand of phone calls interested in buying an Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. <laughs> they said it was advertised by him on their Craigslist. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so good, right? Quote, someone got my information off Facebook and made the ad and posted my numbers on there and thought it would be hilarious. Matt Denny, 30, from Fort St. John told the Toronto Sun on Friday. They somehow got my cell number and my work number, and I have no idea how. I guess it was a professional troll. I had some information on my Facebook I should have set to private. The ad surfaced on Thursday with the ad title Wienermobile. Two available, once in a lifetime buy. $12,000 OBO from Calgary. The company in charge of operating these vehicles have gone bankrupt. Parent Company of Oscar Mayer Canada has commissioned us to sell these Wienermobile. Any logo will be removed before vehicle is picked up. Local Calgary pickup only. No emails. Please call Matt anytime and it's XXX. Anytime. Ask about the big wiener for sale. You know what the funny part is? That he really got thousands of phone calls of people calling about a Wienermobile. Getting a hundred calls an hour. No, the peanut is not for sale. So stop asking. In the background, there's like a picture. So here, I'll show you the Wienermobile. Oh my god, it's a real wiener. It's a there's wiener. a peanut, like a mis- I mean, I knew I was about to see a Wienermobile, but like, it's a fucking Wienermobile. It's like a Mr. Peanut. So the peanut's not uh, for sale. Card. Just the Wienermobile. But the peanuts. <laughs> so stop asking. That's the whole ad. That's Yeah, and that's so specific. Like, stop asking about the peanut, but text Matt about anytime, Wienermobile. Anytime, anytime, like, text like, Matt. Why is that? So the nuts are out, but the wiener's <laughs> in. Okay, I get it. I get it. A wienermobile is a 20-foot-long automobile shaped like a hot dog on a bun, used to promote and advertise Oscar Mayer products in the U.S. The first wienermobile was created in 1936 by Carl Mayer. As of Friday morning, there were over 258,000 page views of the ad. Denny says he's received over 5,000 oh inquiries, including one from the reality show Diesel Brothers wanting to buy the vehicle. Most of the time, he explained that he's being pranked. He reported the ad last night, as have some of the interested buyers. Mostly, people are disappointed there isn't an actual Wienermobile for sale. People really want this Wienermobile. Yeah, it's apparently really it's huge. It's a hot commodity. Quote, they would call me and literally ask me about my big wiener. That's what's in the ad, he laughed. <laughs> I'm sorry, this has to, like, was he in, like, a frat? Because I feel like this is, like... His frat brothers or his real brothers or one of his friends had to do this. Because who the fuck does this? Yeah, and it's not like a, a spurned ex-girlfriend who's like, ask about my small wiener. Right, it's like, ask about my big wiener. Like, all in prank style. It's not like... It's definitely some dudes did this to you. Yeah, totally. The info about the wiener reveals are pretty hilarious. The cars are in used condition from 2006. The trim is long, color pink. So this is the <laughs> description of like the car. The ad says there are two doors, four seats, real real wheel drive with automatic 
transmission. There's a sunroof, alloy wheels, navigation, Bluetooth, Blue Star. I knew it would be fake if it's Bluetooth because that's bullshit. Cruise <laughs> control, trailer hitch, and air conditioning. The car runs on diesel, and of course, fittingly, they have 69,000 kilometers on them. So yeah, obviously a joke. Quote, for the most part, I'm taking it in stride because I got to tip my hat to the guy. It's funny, said Denny. It's an epic prank. This is this might be my favorite. Who's who does that? <laughs> but I'm telling you, I'm like, dude, just ask your friends because only a friend would do something so flattering. Or their friend found a hacker and is like, hey, do me a solid, do this prank. Like, yeah, got- like can you can you have everybody call my friend and ask him for his big wiener? Yeah, it's so like gross. It, it's nobody malicious because if it was me, I'd be like, ask him about his small wiener that doesn't work. That was our episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm pretty freaked out. I'm going to go watch The Office or something funny. Like, subscribe, leave us a review, please. Check us out on social media. Check out our YouTube. But most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye.